Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. (laughs) (laughs) Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Listen to amazing and bizarre science infused into your brain. I'm Therese Chen. On this edition, we'll feature supernovas and their host galaxies. And zombie ladybugs. But first up, here's news with myself and Dr. Julianne Popple. Wallaby farts and burps are more environmentally friendly than cow farts. Researchers from CSIRO in Queensland have found that although Tamar wallabies have a similar diet to cows, they don't produce methane in copious quantities because they have a species of bacteria known as WG1 residing in their digestive system. This bacteria also allows the wallabies to extract nutrients with greater efficiency. Mark Morrison from CSIRO said that their research not only helps build an understanding of how animals extract nutrients from their food, but may give insight into how to manipulate the process in cows. However, it isn't as simple as introducing WG1 into cow guts. According to Robert Forster, a microbial ecologist with Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada in Alberta, relatives of the bacteria WG1 are already present in cows' digestive systems, but are outcompeted by methane-producing bacteria. So it's unlikely that anyone will be producing environmentally friendly cows anytime soon. The smartphone game Angry Birds is being used as an educational aid by physicists in America. The hugely popular game in which you launch small kamikaze birds at buildings is proving to be a useful tool in teaching students how to explore concepts such as gravity and projectile motion. However, the physics in Angry Birds is not the same as in the real world But this is the precise reason that teachers are using it as an educational tool, to try and encourage students to figure out what rules are different and why they may be different. Brian Crescent from gaming website Kotaku interviewed physics teacher John Burke who said, I think students thought that it was a really interesting problem to think about why the gravitational field in the Angry Birds world would be less than in the real world. If Rovio had chosen a realistic value for the gravitational field, the motion would have happened much more quickly and the game would likely be not as fun. So the next time someone tells you that you're wasting time playing Angry Birds, tell them that you're learning about physics in an alternate reality. The remains of a Dephrotodon had been discovered at Floraville Station near Burktown as part of an expedition including researchers from UNSW, the University of Queensland, the Queensland Museum and Extrata. Diphrotodons are large prehistoric mammals about the size of a four-wheel drive and are thought to have been somewhat like a giant wombat. The researchers have described the discovery as extraordinary and suspect that they may be on the verge of uncovering a whole graveyard of megafauna, so we'll have to wait and see what else is unearthed at the site. A small water bug has recently been titled the loudest animal relative to its size. In a study from PLOS1, the water boatman, or Micronectar scolcii, 
has been recorded by French and Scottish scientists to sing up to 99.2 decibels, and on average 98.9 decibels, the equivalent to a passing train. Whilst this is not the loudest noise produced by any animal, the honour goes to the blue whale, reaching 188 decibels. This is quite impressive considering the water boatman only measures approximately 2.3 millimetres in length, making it an exception to the general rule that louder sounds are produced by larger animals. That they are audible to humans on land to begin with is indicative of their volume. Lead researcher Dr. James Windmill of the University of Strathclyde Centre for Ultrasonic Engineering said, Remarkably, even though 99% of sound is lost when transferring from water to air, the sound the song is so loud that a person walking along the bank can actually hear these tiny creatures singing from the bottom of the river. The water boatmen produces their song by rubbing their riparamere's par stridens, a grasping organ used for mating, against the eighth segment in the abdomen in a method known as stridulation, and is believed to serve as a courtship display to attract females, with a high amplitude driven by sexual selection. We assume that this could result of a runaway selection, biologist and co-author Dr. Jerome Squire from the Museum of Natural History Paris told the BBC. Males tried to compete and have access to females, and then tried to produce a song as loud as possible, potentially scrambling the song of competitors. How they are able to produce such a loud sound without any amplification mechanism remains unknown, and scientists are hopeful that finding out will aid in the monitoring of biodiversity, as well as acoustics and the engineering of ultrasonic systems. It appears that there are costs associated with enslaving a bodyguard, in a scenario that would suit a horror movie, the parasitic wasp Dinocampus coccylinidae lays an egg inside a paralysed ladybug. The larvae then eats its way out of the host before weaving a cocoon between the ladybug's legs. Wasp parasitism is not uncommon in the animal world, what was interesting was the fact that after the larvae had emerged, the host was observed to still be alive, twitching erratically. It has been assumed that the zombified ladybug provided protection for the growing parasite. And in a study published in the Journal of the Royal Society, Biology Letters, Fanny Moore discovered that it was in the best interest of the parasitic wasps to keep the host alive. 85% of cocoons sheltered by dead ladybugs were predated upon, in comparison to 35% when the host was still living. A possible explanation for this is the sort of venom the parasite leaves behind which creates the twitching behaviour and possibly renders both unpleasant to predators. Moore also found that in instances where the ladybugs were kept alive for a longer period, the fewer eggs the eventual adult wasp would produce. This suggests that the wasps use the same resource for both egg development and host control, and the wasp is required to make a trade-off. This may be with the energetic costs associated with venom production, but it may also be related to how much the wasp larvae eats. The larvae survives and is nourished by the ladybug's internal organs, and so the fewer eggs may be due to the wasp forgoing getting more food and consequently eating the ladybug to death to increase its chance of survival. If it is any consolation to the ladybug, 25% were found to make a complete recovery from the whole process, 
which is quite unusual given that most host species are usually not so lucky. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to diffusion at 2ser.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network, into Sydney on 2SER, and over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Hello! Hello! We are They Might Be Giants. And we want to welcome you to our musical laboratory. As the philosopher Rudolf Carnap once so clearly said... <clears throat> Science is a system of statements based on direct experience and controlled by experimental verification. Or as we say, science is real. Science is real from the Big Bang to DNA. Science is real from evolution to the Milky Way. visited the 4th Annual Southern Cross Astrophysics Conference, Supernovas and the Host Galaxies, supported by the CSIRO and the Australian Astronomical Observatory. Robert Kirshner is a professor of physics at Harvard University. He spoke to Ian about how supernovas are used to track the expansion of the universe. So we've known about the expansion of the universe since about 1930 or so and people had measured that the galaxies, these big pinwheels of stars, are actually moving away from us. And we think that that's not special about us, that we're not the somehow centrally repulsive force of the universe, but that the whole universe is expanding. Now, and we think that that's been going on for about 14 billion years, because from the distances of the galaxies and the speeds at which they're moving, you can figure out how long this um, expansion has been going on. Well, what's new is that uh, we thought we would measure, maybe 10 or 15 years ago, uh, how the universe, how the expansion of the universe has been changing over time. And what we expected was that gravity would make the universe slow down. So you'd have a universe that was expanding, but gravity, the mutual gravity of all the material in the universe, would slow the expansion 
and that as time goes by, the universe would be expanding more slowly. And the way we're trying to measure that is with supernovae. The subject of our conference here is supernovae, the exploding stars. And the idea is that you can measure their distance from how bright they appear. You know, if you look out, at, uh, out on the harbor and you see a dim light, you think, well, that's far away. And if you see a bright light, you think, well, that's nearby. And that's okay as long as the lights are really the same kind of thing. And it turns out that the, there's a certain kind of supernova, the kind we call type 1a supernova, that's an exploding star that gives off about the same amount of light. And so by measuring how bright it appears, you can figure out how far away it is. Now, the distances are not the distance across the harbor. They are much larger, of course. Uh, these supernovae are so bright that we can see them halfway across the universe with modern tools. So that means you can plot out the speed, which you measure, and the distance, which you get from the properties of the supernova, if you can find the supernovae. Well, that's what makes this tricky. The supernovae are quite rare. You haven't seen one in our own galaxy because there hasn't been one in the last couple hundred years. Um, and it seems like the rate is something like one per century or so for a medium-sized galaxy. But the technology today lets us look at lots of galaxies and find lots of supernovae, including the ones at these big distances. So the game is to figure out how the expansion of the universe has been changing over time by measuring distances from exploding stars and the velocity from the redshift. We measure how the light from a supernova or from a galaxy is stretched out uh, by the expansion. So here's the way, here's what we found about 10 years ago that the universe is not slowing down due to gravity. It's doing the other thing. It's speeding up, uh, which was a big surprise to all of us. Although it turned out there were some old ideas that people had had. In fact, Einstein had an idea of kind of how to balance out gravity because he didn't know about the expanding universe. He thought, well, maybe I better make it a stationary universe. And he put in by hand back in 1917 an extra kind of idea or extra term, mathematical term, which we call the cosmological constant. And nobody really paid much attention to that uh, after the expansion of the universe was discovered because it was put in to make a static universe. So most, most people paid no attention to it. It was very disreputable. On the other hand, uh, you know, sometimes it's a matter of the facts <laughs> convincing you that you really need something like this. So by, uh, well, in 1998, we found some data. We measured enough supernovae that uh, convinced us that the universe was not slowing down, but was speeding up. Uh, we attribute this to the something, which we call the dark energy. Well, we call it that because we don't really know what it is, but we do know that it isn't uh, uh, visible to us. It just is some property of the space itself, probably. And it might even be Einstein's old cosmological constant, the thing that people called his greatest blunder, might turn out to be something we need. So we're, it's kind of like diving in Einstein's dumpster and getting his old crumpled up ideas, smoothing them out, presenting them as if we just thought of them ourselves. So anyway, uh, this is a big deal because the um, dark energy, uh, according to the kind of census we can do of the different things that are in the universe, has to be about two-thirds of the mass and energy in the universe. So the visible stars that we see are only about 4%. There's some other kind of dark stuff that is slowing things down, so the dark matter, which has got gravity and is slowing stuff down. And then on the other side of this kind of cosmic tug of war, 
there's the dark energy trying to speed things up and that over the last five billion years or so seems to have been winning and is making things um, speed up. So it's a big thing because you know it controls the universe. We don't know what it is. It could be Einstein's cosmological constant. And the kinds of things we're discussing at this conference are how do you uh, learn more about what the supernovae are so that you don't get fooled into making errors about uh, the distance and so that you do the, a more precise job of sketching out how this uh, speeding up of the universe has gone. Has gone. And so you know, what I'm talking about uh, at the meeting is how to use observations at a different set of wavelengths out in the infrared that would let you uh, make more accurate measurements of the distances and measure more precisely what the properties of the dark energy are and to see whether it is or is not consistent with being uh, the cosmological constant. So there's a lot at stake here. It's as if there's most of the universe is in some mysterious form. We want to find out what it is and measure its properties even if we don't really have a, a good grip on it. So it's a very funny kind of science. The, um, Ordinarily, you know, when you want to try to find out how physics works, you set up an experiment and you kind of make the measurements in the lab. But for this, there is no laboratory experiment that can measure this property, uh, that we can think of anyway, that can measure this property uh, of the universe, and yet it's one of the most important. So it's something that's happening on the smallest scale, and yet it affects everything, the big, the future of the universe. So. For example, if uh, uh, dark energy is the cosmological constant exactly, um, then we can predict what the future of the universe will be, and it will be an, ex an accelerating expansion. It will be something that speeds up and literally uh, expands exponentially. That means the rate at which it expands depends on how big it is. So the bigger it gets, the faster it goes. Um, now we don't know if that's really true and you can't, you know, you can use telescopes to observe the past and see what the universe was doing in the past. We can't observe the future so we can only try to get a better and better picture of how the universe works and kind of uh, sort this out, find out what the nature of the dark energy is. But I would say all the facts today are consistent with the dark energy being this cosmological constant, which we don't really understand but which we think must have something to do with how gravity works on the very sub-microscopic scales that empty space is not uh, without properties, you know? That <laughs> the vacuum in, in the modern picture is uh, something where there are particles and antiparticles being created and annihilated all the time. And for forces that we know about, like electromagnetism, that picture where you have a a universe where the, um, the vacuum is not empty but is doing this kind of fun business uh, turns out to be much more, a much better model, a much better, gives a better prediction of how things really work. We don't know that that's true for gravity. We don't have a quantum theory of gravity. That's when people start to wring their hands about this. But uh, it looks like some important question about gravity is, is, at, the is at the heart of this. Uh, and then it really is uh, about the, the properties of um, gravity on the very small scale that determine this property of the dark energy and of the universe on the really big scale. So there's a lot at stake. It's a lot of fun. It's a big surprise. Um, and it looks like the only way to go forward is with astronomy. That is, by making these measurements uh, in the universe. 
And so lots of people have been trying to think of different ways to do this. The supernova is one way. You can also do it by looking at how galaxies cluster together over time under the action of gravity. Uh, and you can also look at the imprint on the glow from the Big, ba big Bang itself, the so-called microwave background. And people are making all these measurements, trying to put them together and make a physical picture uh, of how the universe works. But it's a picture that depends entirely on measurements made off the Earth. And uh, it would be great if there were some laboratory experiment um, to do this, but we don't have any at the moment. It's kind of like the, the time when people discovered that the speed of light was finite. You know, the speed of light is very fast. Ordinary life, you know, we think fast as light. But it's not really infinitely fast. It travels a foot. That's a distance we use in the United States. Uh, it travels a foot in a nanosecond, in a billionth of a second. And so you never see things the way they really are. You always see things as they were when the light left the object. Um, now, astronomers knew back in the 1600s that the light traveled at a finite speed because when the Earth was closer to Jupiter, the moons of Jupiter appeared to uh, go in their orbit at a different time than they did when we were on the other side. And it takes 15 minutes for light to cross the Earth's orbit. Uh, and clocks were good enough at that point. But a laboratory experiment where you could measure the speed of light was much harder. And that nobody could do that until 1840 or so. So there were 200 years between the time when astronomers were sure that light didn't travel at an infinite speed, but at a finite speed and the time when you could actually make a measurement uh, in the laboratory. And I think we're kind of at a similar stage. Well, I don't know if we are, but we might be at a similar stage, so you have to be patient with us. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, we made a measurement in the universe that shows there's this thing, this dark energy is something, uh, might be the cosmological constant, uh, but we don't have a laboratory way to measurement, measure it. Um, so it's, uh, it's kind of unsatisfactory. We're kind of hoping that maybe we'll have, somebody will have a good idea uh, for what this is and that there'll be some idea for how to make the measurement to find out what the nature of the dark energy really is. The acceleration of the expansion of the universe, right. does that change the way we work out the age of the cosmos? Yeah, so here's the idea. First of all, the light from an exploding star comes to us through the expanding universe. So it travels to us, but the universe is expanding while it's traveling, so you have to take all that into account. If the universe is going at a certain speed, the travels a certain distance and appears a certain brightness. If the universe is speeding up during the time the light's in travel, then the uh, distance is bigger and uh, the object will appear dimmer. Also, uh, the relation between the current rate of expansion, how fast the universe is expanding right nearby, well, you know, the nearest 100 million light years or so, that's what we call nearby, uh, the, the, the difference between the expansion nearby, here and now, and the expansion in the distant past. So here's the way it works. If the universe is speeding up, then it's expanding faster now than it was in the past, and you will underestimate the age of the universe if you just take the current rate. On the other hand, if it's slowing down, if it were slowing down, and you took the current rate, you would overestimate how long the universe has been expanding. And it turns out that the history of the expansion that we measure so far includes some slowing down and some speeding up more recently. And when you take the average over that, it's almost exactly 
and maybe this is just a coincidence, it's almost exactly the time that you would get from the current rate of expansion, a time of about 14 billion years. Well, that seems very lucky, so nobody's wrong yet. Yes, that was right, that the simplest thing you could do, which was take the current rate of expansion and figure out the age, turns out not to be far off. In fact, very close, <laughs> it's within a few percent. So that's, uh, I think that's just a coincidence. It won't be true in the future. It wasn't true in the past. It's a little odd that it's uh, true right now. But anyway, this age of 14 billion years, or 13.7, as people like to say, with a kind of extra precision, uh, really seems to be the actual chronological age of the universe, too. If you look at the oldest stars, and you ask how long does it take them to get to where they are, if you look at uh, the chemical elements, the radioactive elements uh, in the solar system and so on, uh, if you look at, anyway, all the ages that we have that uh, allow us to measure how old the universe is, uh, all of them point to this long time scale of many billions of years, and most of them point pretty well at this time of 14 billion years. So, yes, the universe has been slowing down and then speeding up, and that is a little complicated, but it turns out that it's sort of balanced out and that the, the current estimate of the age uh, that you do the simplest way uh, it's very close to the value you'd get if you do it in a more complicated way. Robert Kirshner, thank you very much. My pleasure. That was Professor Robert Kirshner speaking to Ian Wolfe about supernovas and the accelerating expansion of the universe at the Southern Cross Astrophysics Conference at the Maritime Museum in Sydney. And that's all from us this time on Diffusion. You can send email to diffusion at 2ser.com. That's diffusion at 2ser.com. And tell us your thoughts, feelings, and stories. If you'd like to be on radio and you live in Sydney, we need more volunteers on Diffusion. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. Contributing to the program were Dr. Julianne Popple and Ian Wolfe. Diffusion has been produced by Ian Wolfe in the studios of 2SER in Sydney. Diffusion is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Therese Chen. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Just might cure your depression But carbon is a girl's best friend And gold may be grand But it won't start a fire in your barbecue Or put the toot in your choo-choo Life on Earth is carbon-based It came here on rocks from outer space and formed organic compounds Till the carbon cycle went round and round Carbon is a girl's best friend Well there may come a time When you need to do some squeezing Carbon is the world's hardest friend 